mighty God and everlasting Father, we come before you, the God who has revealed himself to his people, and we so desire, O Lord, that we may see, hear, understand your word, that we might receive it, that we might honor and glorify you as a result of it. We pray, O Lord, that you administer to us through your word and that you would aid us as we look to what you have given your servants and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would minister to us, giving unction this morning and the power of hearing well by utilizing the means of grace in order to grow and to love you. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look, Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. In thinking about what we had covered last week, just as a little bit of a reminder, the initial appearance of God to Abram, then changing his name to Abraham, the great God, the El El Shaddai, the Almighty One, speaks with the servant and he requires faithful obedience to his revealed will. Being perfect, meant to walk blamelessly before him, to be like God. And God changes his name to Abraham and explains the promise of the covenant more fully, that it will be everlasting, forever and ever, and that there are requirements to keeping covenant with God. He gives Abraham the sign of the covenant and a promise made to him and his seed. The covenant sign is a token, a pledge that's made specifically in his flesh. The object lesson and the significance given to Abraham demonstrating the bloodiness of the covenant in the procreative organ that Abraham was to continue this particular sign demonstrating the cutting of the covenant that was seen in Genesis chapter 15. The seed, every time the seed passed through the procreative organ of Abraham or his descendants, it was passing through 
the cut covenant an object lesson for them to be reminded. The pact, the sacrifice, the male being the spiritual head of the household, every time that blood was spilt, the promise would be remembered. The passing of the seed through that covenant and through that cutting bound them as servants to God Most High. To be cut off was to break that covenant. The person then himself was broken. Now, in thinking about what we talked about last week, three things we discussed, that God is a covenant-keeping God, and that God is a covenant-keeping God that works within families, and that the covenant sign is to be placed on all in the family by covenant keepers. There are some theological applications, though, of the covenant sign in thinking about it. Some apply the verses suggesting that this is simply one covenant or one way of salvation that God had utilized until the coming of the new covenant, which is going to be different than these previous covenants because each covenant trumps the next. The covenant with Noah was trumped by the covenant with Abraham. And the covenant with Moses trumps the covenant that was made with Abraham. And the covenant with David trumps the covenant that was made with Moses, and so on. Until this progression comes where we have something new happen with the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe that there is some kind of line that divides both the Old Testament and the New Testament in a way which does away with these previous covenants to make room for the brand new covenant that comes in Christ's blood. They forget, though, rather quickly that the covenants God had made with his people all have a lasting impact on the state of the church as it progresses through the one covenant of grace. There are, in fact, in demonstrating some of the different covenants in the scriptures, only three that the church has looked at throughout the history of the church. The covenant of redemption, or what we call the council of peace, demonstrated in Zechariah, where salvation is particularly granted in that covenant that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenant together in which they're going to save a people. And as a result of the Son's work, those people will, as his elect, be saved as a result of that redemptive covenant. Then, there is the covenant of works in which God made with Adam, in which everyone is bound to. And merit is attached to that covenant for salvation and identity. If Adam was to keep that covenant, then we would all be in a much better place than we are today. We would not be fallen. His sin would not have been imputed to us, and the garden would have been a very different place. But because he sinned, and because he fell, the third covenant, the covenant of grace, was enacted in Genesis chapter 3, demonstrating God's promise to his covenant people that in time, the covenant of redemption would break through, and salvation, and how God deals 
with the people in his church would be attached to that covenant, the covenant of grace. So the covenant of redemption in which we find election, the covenant of works in which we find merit, and the covenant of grace in which salvation is demonstrated in time to us are the three covenants, so to speak, that the scriptures speak of. In terms of time, in terms of God dealing with his people, we have salvation given to the church for the saving of their soul. And there is one demonstration of salvation in the scriptures. There is only one way to heaven, as we'll see. Isaiah 24, verse 5 says, The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant is that which is made, quote, with our fathers, or the Abrahamic promise that God would be a God to him and his descendants after him as an everlasting covenant. It's important to remember that God maintains that covenant. Not us, not men. Men in their fallen state and their sinful actions don't have the ability to keep it the way that they are supposed to keep it. They break it. The covenant, though, is eternal. It's eternal or without a predetermined ending which is how Christians think about the covenant that's made with Abraham and ratified or confirmed in its fulfillment with Christ. For instance, even previous to Abraham, God said to Noah, before he spoke to Abraham, God said to Noah that the rainbow would be a sign to Noah, to all the inhabitants of the earth, that he would never again destroy the earth by water. We still have rainbows today. We still have, as God told Noah, the everlasting covenant that demonstrates God's promise. God said to the serpent in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush his head and that Christ has done specifically that. He has fulfilled everything that God had said to our forefathers. The same promise, the same gospel that's given is still with us as well, as both Zechariah and Mary attest to in Luke chapter 1, which we read a little earlier. The scripture says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, not Holy covenants, but holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Jesus Christ fulfills and ratifies the covenant that God made with Abraham. It may seem very strange to think that Abraham had the gospel preached to him, and it's the same gospel that we have today. But even think about it. Jesus comes onto the scene and begins his ministry and begins preaching the gospel. What does he preach? Does he preach, I'm going to go to a cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to be risen, I'm going... He doesn't preach any of that. He preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 8, 
and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, this is what he said, this was the gospel, in you all the nations shall be blessed. The gospel is much bigger than the very narrow focus that many dispensationalists today, and I use that big word, in separating the Old Testament from the New Testament, that they do. Paul obviously has much more in mind theologically than just the phrase, in you all the nations shall be blessed, and he will explain more of that, yet this is the keynote. That is the keynote in which the gospel is placed upon and was given to Abraham. And so Genesis 17 and Genesis 15 become very pivotal texts for the establishment of God's covenant of grace to his church. The called out ones, the ecclesia, the church, modeling the calling out of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 from Ur in the Chaldeans. In view of that, what did Abraham understand or believe concerning the gospel? In other words, how was God a God to him forever? Well, first, the covenant that was made with Abraham here is something that God initiates. Abraham was not looking for God. God chose Abraham out of an idolatrous nation and commanded him to leave his father's house for a land that he would show him. He was dead in his sin. And he was rescued by God's grace. Secondly, the covenant is something that God maintains. God initiates the covenant and is the only one able to maintain the covenant through spiritual empowerment. That's why even when we look at the Westminster Confession, everything that we do, everything that we are able to do is, quote, holy from the Spirit of Christ. We cannot continue or uphold faithfully the binding nature of the covenant of grace because we're already beginning by being fallen. God alone, working through us, we who are vessels of clay, he upholds his covenant through us. And it's consummated by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in which it will be finished and we will all live forever in the eternal garden in heaven. Thirdly, this covenant is something he'll bring into complete fulfillment. The covenant is not something left to chance. It's not left up to the whims of men. The plan of God to bring about the fulfillment of this covenant is seen in his miraculous interventions all through the scriptures, as well as his self-revelation to us in the scripture, as well as his ordinary signs that he gives us, that God gives his servant Abraham. He gives them a sign of the covenant to demonstrate visually what the covenant means, the binding nature of it, God's purpose, what God had done with Abraham in Genesis 15. Fourth, it is an eternal covenant that reaches beyond the temporary time of Abraham's sojourn on earth. As Calvin said, Abraham would have been more stupid than a block of wood to believe that the covenant promises were merely land, seed, and blessing on the earth. Rather, the covenant embodies in it the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Abraham was after a city that had as its builder 
and maker, God. He was looking for something very different than simply land, seed, and blessing on earth. If we were to put Abraham's situation into modern theological ideas, if we were to pop him forward in time, what various gospel ideas could be concluded? What same things would we think that Abraham would think? Well, one is very obvious. Abraham was justified by faith alone. Romans 4, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, faith is accounted for righteousness. So, of course, Paul would be a complete imbecile to use Abraham as the example of faithfulness for, quote, New Testament Christians, if, in fact, Abraham were saved in some different way. But he's not. Abraham was justified by faith, the promise of God, just as New Testament Christians are. He is our father in this regard, the father of the faithful. This presses the point of Paul's use of therefore in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And then he continues on to make theological applications concerning Christians as a result of Abraham's example. We are supposed to be like him. We are to have his faith. We are to have his obedience. Another theological conclusion from Abraham would be that God had regenerated his heart and made residence with him. For, as Jesus says to Nicodemus, nobody can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. No one. That's why in John chapter 3, he explains to the Israeli teacher that this is how men are saved. They're saved by being regenerated by the Holy Spirit who blows here and there like the wind. And Nicodemus doesn't necessarily understand And in John chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus says to him, You are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? These are the basics. No one could be justified unless he were first regenerate and indwelt by the Spirit of God. No one can be God's friend without such grace. And James, in chapter 2, verse 23, calls Abraham a friend of God. Abraham was the recipient of God's grace. And he was saved. And he was believed. And he understood the promises of God to him. For the same gospel that was given to him is given to the Gentiles as well. Quote, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The exact same gospel then is the same gospel now. The promise of the Spirit was given to Abraham as much as it is given to Christians today. And Abraham was a very good theologian about those things. He believed in the sovereign power of God. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, as Paul says in Romans 4. He believed what God said. He believed this earthly life was a sojourn. Quote, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11. He believed in the resurrection power of God. The miracles of God, quote, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. 
Even the writer of Hebrews is saying that Abraham received the same gospel ideas of resurrection power in a figurative sense, speaking of the testing that he went through with his son Isaac. Abraham believed God answers prayer. So Abraham prayed to God, and God heard Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and they bore children. Genesis 20, verse 17. He submitted to God's testing with contentment, never wavering at the promise of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, yes, we find that Abraham was a very good Christian theologian. The same benefits of salvation that Abraham had, Christians have today. And that's the way, progressively, that we would think about it. Not that the same things we have today he had, it's that the same things he had, we have today. Jesus Christ, as Hebrews says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it should be noted that those words about Christ in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 reflect the nature of Christ's promises. The writer of Hebrews exhorts Christians to be stable, not blown about by every wind of doctrine, because the promises of God in Christ never change. They're always the same. They are everlasting. And we should take a moment to ponder the reality that God is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same in his promises to Abraham as he is to us today with the exact same gospel, especially in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is a priest in the same priesthood that mediated for Abraham, the priesthood of Melchizedek. It is an eternal, never-ending, perfect priesthood. Why? Well, Melchizedek, as we know, as we studied a, a few chapters ago when we were dealing with that aspect in Genesis, and when we looked at Hebrews, Hebrews 7 says, And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Eternal. That was the nature of it. And that's why one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, is from the Psalms. The Lord has sworn. This is a promise. It's an oath, and he will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of this better covenant than the covenant of works. Melchizedek ministered to Abraham in Genesis 14, and that priesthood is an effectual priesthood. And as Melchizedek is a type of Christ, so Christ ministers to Abraham through Melchizedek. And now... We have that same priesthood ministered to us today. The spiritual realities that result from the covenant of grace, Christ has fulfilled, they are the same realities that Abraham had and was administered even before God made his sure promises to known in Genesis 15 and 17. He was already blessing his servant and giving him the gospel. God was a God to Abraham, in and through the types of Christ to come, by way of that eternal priesthood. It is a ratification. It is a confirmation what Jesus does. He doesn't create a new reality. 
he confirms the everlasting oath that God made to our fathers, to those who went before us, and continues as the only high priest for his people, interceding for them right now before the throne of grace. He does that for his people. So what a richness and what kind of blessing that Abraham had, in the same way, we are to delight as well. And where will we go? Will Abraham come and sit down at our table? No. We will go and we will sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. With God, who is the God of the living, as Christ said, not the God of the dead. The unchangeable nature of the promise should be very much considered here. God did not say he might be a God to Abraham, but that he would be a God to him. He would be his exceedingly great reward, as we saw in previous chapters. So the covenant of grace made with Abraham was very unilateral. It was a covenant of sovereign grace, and it was free, and it was ministered to him by God in his unshakable promise that was everlasting and could not be revoked. Why? The scriptures say over and over and over again, here's one place, Romans 11:29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Once God does that, it is irrevocable. Genesis and Hebrews both point to the unshakable nature of that promise. In Genesis 17, the phrase everlasting covenant is used a number of times. In Hebrews, it's used everlasting again and again. The sure promise, the oath promised over and over again. God's covenant, it's like himself. It's like his nature. Perpetual, continual, complete, without the eternal sacrifice of Christ for his elect people, undergirding everything that God has done and everything that God has accomplished on behalf of redeemed men, the covenant would end. But because of what Jesus does, and every time you speak about something that Jesus does, you're speaking about the electing power of God, the service of the Son to the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're talking about the covenant of redemption. Whenever Christ accomplishes those things, the covenant is upheld that is administered to us. That's why Hebrews 9.15 says, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Abraham was God's adopted son by grace. He was called, regenerated, enacting faith, justified, sanctified, and he is in heaven with Christ right now. That is what it salvifically means that God would be a God to him. And those among the church community today who have faith like Abraham are the heirs of the same promise that God gave to him that is irrevocable. Christ is actively propagating his new seed in the lineage of Abraham, regenerating hearts and implanting the ability to exercise faith. He ministers to his people today just as he did in the day of Abraham and Melchizedek. But with Christ, 
Everything is ratified and confirmed and made complete and permanent. There, there is no more progression in terms of demonstrating the covenant of grace to his people in time. There will be a great change once we go to heaven. But as it stands now, the ratification of what Christ has done is permanent. How then is this spiritual faith deposited or propagated? How did, or think of it this way, how did Abraham think about this eternal promise? Did he have a further need to think of Eleazar? and his heir in that way, or did the promise of God and his son that would come from his loins press him to consider the state of his physical relations based on that promise a little differently? Well, it would. Certainly the latter. There are certain ecclesiastical ideas that are bound up in the covenant of grace that Abraham would have thought about. Ideas that would extend into those promises, into his family. It is true, God was a God to Abraham. But that is not all the verse says. That's not all we read. God said, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations for an everlasting covenant. This is the same promise that Hebrews says is the sure oath made in Christ to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. Not only was God a God to Abraham by sovereign grace, but the dictates of the covenant also included his physical descendants as well. God would be a God to Abraham and his descendants after him. Same faith, same ideas, same covenant, same. So the question is, do Christians have the same faith that Abraham had? Are they children of the faithful believer and the promises that God makes? Do they believe the same gospel that Abraham believed, the same promises that Christ ministered to him? Do Christians believe what is written in the Word, rather than trying to pick apart the decreed counsels of God, trying to determine whether or not their children are saved, actually doubting what God had previously said? How a glorious thing it is for Christians to embrace the promises that God makes to them and their children for all time as an everlasting covenant. These are wonderful promises to be had. Why? Because the entire purpose that God has in propagating families in general is that he desires godly seed, which is Malachi 2.15 and 1 Corinthians 7.14. God desires that we first have the same unwavering faith of the patriarch to whom the promises were given. So let's ask this question. What is a covenant sign and why is it important? Well, we know that Christ came to fulfill all the conditions for us of the covenant. Without him, there is no covenant of grace ministered to us. We don't have a future knowledge of who's saved in the church and who's not. We don't have a future knowledge of whether or not our children will grow up to be covenant keepers or covenant breakers. Instead, we are simply to rely on what God's promises are as to whether or not we believe them or whether we waver at those promises, which is exactly what Genesis 17 was teaching Abraham. We are to obey as Abraham did without wavering on the promises. We are not to be hard-pressed 
to reconcile God's covenant of redemption and the elect, who we don't know because we don't know, nobody has an E on their forehead that says they're elect, with the covenant of grace that ministered to us in time. If the children go up to demonstrate that they're covenant breakers, then the decree is evident. The disparity of the event itself proves the intention of the caller and election later on. God has maybe left them in their sin. They've rebelled. They've become covenant breakers. But the Christian, their view of life is not of pessimism. Their view is of optimism. And not worrying about the decrees of God, but worrying about the faith that they have and the promises that God has given. So in dealing with the sign of the covenant, covenant signs are sacraments, mysteries, wherein Christ has ordained an outward act to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself a remission of sins by his blood, regeneration by his spirit, adoption, and resurrection unto eternal life. That's the way that the confession places it. They are also, depending on which one we speak about, in this case circumcision, solemn admissions into the visible church in a demonstration of those who enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Again, the same use that the confession uses. So what do the signs do? Do they do something? Why is God so bent on telling Abraham that if he doesn't do this particular thing, that he would be cut off? The infant seed of every one of Abraham's offspring should take hold of the covenant as Abraham did, by faith, as they grow. Otherwise, they break the covenant that God makes with them, and they don't uphold by obedience. And the interesting thing is, is that we always think that covenant signs are always something that's positive. Now, they, they're supposed to be positive because they're a good thing. They are that which God ministers to us, the covenant of grace and visible tokens of God's promise. But they're also simply the pact or agreement that God makes to us and with our children. Could be for curse, could be for blessing, hopefully for blessing. But does it do anything? Does it touch them and magically change them in some way? It does do something. It does enact upon that particular person the visible tokens of God's promise by which we are to improve those covenant signs. Even as Martin Luther said, don't take out all the mystery and the mysterious nature of the sacraments. We would be left with nothing. That was one of the things that he was trying to instruct Zwingli in dealing with the Lord's Supper. Don't take out the mysterious nature of it and just say that it's bread and wine and nothing else. Because you're taking out the mysterious nature of the manner in which God deals with us. Children of believing parents are conceived in sin. But Christians are to believe that at some point in time, unless God gives them some special knowledge that they should be cast out, as he did with Abraham concerning Ishmael, that they are as much a partaker of the covenant as Christians are. That special revelation of God speaking to us about our children doesn't happen today. He did that only on a couple of occasions. Two, to be specific with Ishmael and Esau. But we are, to, we are left to discern promises that are made in the Word, where God says, 
in the everlasting covenant that he will be a God to us and to them. Do Christians believe this? Or are they really worried about the future? I'm not going to do anything until my child shows me something later on. Rather, they should take up the charge to teach, admonish, and nurture their children in the Lord, believing all of the promises that God makes, whether they are of salvation or whether they are simply covenantal. Listen to what John Owen said. The truth of God's promises is not confirmed if the sign and seal of them is denied. Let me read that again. The truth of God's promises is not confirmed if the sign and seal of them be denied. For what whereon they believed that God was a God under their seed as well as under themselves was this, that he granted the token of the covenant under their seed as well as under themselves. If this be taken away by Christ, their faith is overturned and the promise itself is not confirmed but weakened. As to the virtue of it, has been to beget faith and obedience. In other words, if the eternal everlasting covenant changes, then Abraham's faith in which we are to mimic is completely and utterly overthrown. It doesn't mean anything. Where, for us as Christians, it should mean everything. Abraham had God as his God. He believed the promises were for him and the line of his children through Isaac, ultimately coming into the confirmation and ratification of the covenant in Jesus Christ. He believed. And that's our model. Abraham was nobody special. He was a pagan. God saved him, took him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He called him, made him faithful, showed him promises, and told him to be blameless, told him simply to believe what God said. And so these things solidify that promise. Did Abraham believe prior to administering the sign of the covenant? Did he believe by God's word alone that Isaac would be a son of promise? Of course he did. Then there was the confirmation of that promise. Uh, the rubber to the road, putting the money where your mouth is kind of idea. And so... He placed the covenant sign on his child. He believed Isaac was a child of wrath, yes, but we're not talking about election. We're talking about how God deals with people in the church. And this is in contrast to those adults who were circumcised in Abraham's home upon the first administration of the sign. As God says, they would have to yield themselves to circumcision or be cut off and lose all sense of a very important aspect of ecclesiastical culture, which happens in the family. In other words, the denial of the sign is like excommunicating yourself and your children from the church. Does God desire you to treat your children like someone excommunicated? If after the circumcision took place, and an adult male, say a servant, came to Abraham and he sat with him and asked him, say, Father Abraham, does God look upon me with special favor? What would be Abraham's answer? What would he say? What would the faithful covenanter say to his servant? Most assuredly, if you believe. 
And yet, if Abraham were to consider then the progeny to come, he would and did, based on the promises of God, only that, look at that eight-year, eight-day-old child as saved, as having those promises according to God's word. The sign of circumcision, which is simply the sign of regeneration, on those that are not regenerated is placed because of the promise that God's make, because of what he says. And if Abraham were to waver on that, he would have disdained the promise altogether. And the sign would then be meaningless. And that is what the Jews made it later on, because they thought that as long as I just did this, we were saved. And it wasn't that. Some think that Paul thought that circumcision was just a meaningless ritual, and that it was unnecessary and needful, and the New Testament changes all of that, because he sure does say in Romans chapter 2, for he is not a Jew or is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And 1 Corinthians 7.19, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That, though, is to wrest the passages from their context, to say that a mere outward observant alone of the sign administered to the child would, to save them, that would be blasphemous. That is what the Catholic Church believes. They believe that when they take the sign and they put it on their child, that that does something magically to him. But with Abraham, it was much different. Abraham was credited with righteousness before circumcision, not after or by it. There are those like the federal visionists, like the Romanists, who believe the sign itself holds a grace that is instituted upon the unregenerate and yielding to them after regeneration or an infusion of righteousness. And no good theologian believes that. That is the epitome of work salvation. And that is what Paul is arguing against in every circumcision passage in the New Testament. Romans, Galatians. And he refutes that with a vigor because it's not by works that one is saved. The right means nothing in and of itself, although the Jews thought it initiated everything. Rather, the sign demonstrates or outwardly proclaims that which God will do inwardly based on his promise that we are to believe. It demonstrates a union. It's a demonstration, a token. Otherwise, it would have been foolhardy for God to promise any given line, since, hypothetically, those children would just rebel later on. God would be crazy to create this familial solidarity in this line if later they could just rebel and it would be done and there would be nothing there and it didn't mean anything. The right of circumcision or the right of baptism as a covenant sign doesn't save It doesn't regenerate the heart. It's simply an external adherence demonstrating a token covenant sign. It demonstrates the promises of God. And that's what the passage leans on. That's what it sets itself on. Will Abraham really believe these things or will will he not? One or the other. All of what we've talked about thus far demonstrates the necessity of believing in sovereign grace to save. 
rather than the Arminian-like notion that we should wait until we see something in men to determine their eternal state and then administer the covenant sign at that point. That's Arminian, as if you could be a good judge of that. If that were simply the case, God would never have instituted anything around a familial sign. He would have never done that. He would have given the sign to individuals, not families. And in every case of administering the covenant sign on anyone, we're always presuming that they're converted. That's why we administer the sign. That's why we would do it in the first place. Hopefully, by grace, they are. But that's up to God. That's not up to us. We don't know the insides of a man's heart. Imagine for a second thinking in reverse. Let's think in reverse for a second. Let's think wrongly about the promises of God just for a minute. Let's hypothetically say that God desires Abraham to place the sign of the covenant upon his sons and upon his servants, presuming them not to be children of promise, not to be converted, not to be something special in God's eye. So here's a little conversation that would take place with Abraham talking to Isaac, say his 15-year-old son, would go something like this. Isaac says, Father, does God love me? Abraham says, no. Isaac says, why not? Abraham, because God has to first save you before he can love you. We have to treat you like you're one of the Amalekites until we know that God has regenerated your heart. So Isaac says, you mean treat me like a heathen? Abraham says, exactly. Until God saves you, you're a heathen. Isaac says, but why do I have this special mark on me from my infancy? Abraham says, well, God told me to put it on you. Isaac says, why? Abraham says, he said he would be a God to me and my descendants after me. Well, Isaac says, I'm one of your descendants, right? Abraham chuckles, of course you are. You're the son of promise. Isaac says, promise of what? Abraham says, promise that God would continue the line of salvation through you if you have faith. Isaac says, well, how could God be a saving God to me if he didn't love me specially? Abraham says, well, he'll be a God to you if you obey him. Isaac says, so the promise is based on a condition that I do? Abraham says, well, yes. No. Well, he's confused. Isaac says, I guess it's not much of a promise if the condition rests on me. The sign placed on his son is a confirmation that he believes what God says. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Jeremiah 4 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. What do the prophets think circumcision means? If the sign represents other things. It represents God's promise of regeneration. Why in the world would God want Abraham to place the sign of regeneration on his eight-day-old infant? Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. The Westminster Confession says the sacraments do three things. They are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. Two, to also put, listen, 
to also put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. And three, to solemnly to engage them to service of God in Christ according to his word. That is what they do. The sacraments of any testament in regard of the spiritual things that they signify and exhibit were of the same substance. They are of the same substance all through the Bible. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, I don't want you to be ignorant about basic things. That all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. Who did they drink from? Who was it? What was the same about what we do? And what was the same about what they do? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. The nature of the visible church never changes. The nature of the invisible church never changes. The covenant signs don't save anyone. They simply demonstrate the promises and demonstrate whether or not we have covenantal faithfulness and draw with our fingers, so to speak, covenantal lines. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Neither dotes the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that administers it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains, together with a precept authorizing its use, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. God never said that you place the sign and then suddenly I'm going to miraculously save them. What he does say is these visibly draw covenantal lines between those who I promise to bless and those whom I won't. So we have to ask ourselves in these things how we believe the things that God says or whether we waver at the promises that he made to Father Abraham, our father, the father of our faith. That is the reason God gave them and gives us covenant signs. It demonstrates whether or not we will improve those things, and it demonstrates the realities that are found in the ratification that God has done. Next week, we're going to specifically apply some of these ideas concerning the visible church. But for now, let's simply remember, God is the covenant-keeping God. God is the one who works with us, with our families. The covenant sign is there to be placed on the family by covenant keepers demonstrating the spiritual realities that sit behind them, even unto eight-day-old infants. Let's pray. Mighty God and everlasting one, we thank you that you are the everlasting God, that you have everlasting promises, and that you bless us with those everlasting promises. We thank you for the covenant of redemption in which we have salvation. And we thank you, O Lord, for breaking into time and demonstrating to us your grace in redemption, in the covenant of grace that you made with our fathers, and at which the same table we will sit down at 
sharing in the same blessings that they were blessed with, ratified in the power of Jesus Christ, the only high priest forever and ever. We thank you for such things. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.